Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Celebrity Catch-Up Life After That Thing I Did. In the words of Simply Red, if you don't know me by now, I'm Genevieve and I've had another crop of fantastic guests join me this past series. It's also the podcast's first birthday, so what better way to mark it than with a best of season two episode? We'll start with Police Academy star Michael Winslow, who treated me to a range of sound effects during our fun chat, and I also threw a few of my own in. Oh, I do that all the time. People's dogs and cats. I tell people, you know, go ahead, turn the speakers on. On, you know, if you if if you if you can let the speakers in in the house, go go ahead, turn it on, because the the dogs have an opinion. They would definitely definitely have an opinion, and and the, and the cats are annoyingly interested when you go my cats are the same when when we do cat noises and and i'm i I don't i think i'm quite good at cat noises now because i've had cats all my life so um you know i I have like the the kitten noises like the mewing like you do like the yeah but then i also have the uh my old family cat Ginger used to sit outside in the rain, meowing to come in because we didn't have a cat flap, and he'd make this noise that would be like, "Very good, you're doing really, really well with this. <laughs> you really are. Well, it, it works. We 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 have a stray that that sounds exactly like that. So so we just call her Miss Wow because that's all she ever says. <laughs> A diva, a diva cat from uh, from the neighborhood. Yo, what up, Miss Mouth? <laughs> what up, girl? And I turn into Tina Turner's sister, Tuna. You know, <laughs> go, hello, darling. <laughs> hello, Miss Wow. Diva kitty. So, darling, how's the fish? Turn over any trash cans this evening. <laughs> <laughs> and believe me, the animals in the neighborhood they get it and they react too. I can get a, I can get a barking chain in a neighborhood, especially in London. I can get a barking chain going for about twenty minutes. You know what I mean? A bark chain. All you do, all you have to do is just, just one go. And then I go. And then just wait. And then a couple blocks away. Sniff my what? What'd you say? <laughs> it works. And see, that's a, that's the first excitement in, in, in a month they've had. The 90s saw the rebirth of teen movies, and two films that stood out for me in particular were Clueless and American Pie. And I was so lucky to have stars from both films guest this season. We'll start with Elisa Donovan, who of course played Amber, shares Nemesis in Clueless, talking about the inspiration behind her now famous catchphrase, followed by Thomas Nicholas, aka Kevin from American Pie. So the film became a pop culture phenomenon and one big contributing factor was the language that was mm. used and how people then adopted it into their everyday speech. In particular, as if, um, and the phrase that you made famous, whatever, with your hands in the in the W. <laughs> yeah. At the time, were you thinking, you know, like, what are we saying? <laughs> I Well, the funny thing is I had a, a, a boyfriend prior to the, like from the age of 17 to 21, and we would break up, we would fight all the time, break up, get back together. And he used to say whatever all the time to me in this way that 
just infuriated me, right? It was like, I couldn't stand it when he said this. So when this became my, when I read the script and I went, oh, this is her word, I I felt like, oh, this is kismet in some way. You know, I'm going to be able to use this word now to my advantage in a defining way. Uh, it just really made me laugh. But the other, all of the the rest of the lexicon of terms, I mean, it was just, again, so brilliant on Amy's part, her, all the research she did. And she's just really astute with not only being able to tap into what people at that age are going through and saying, she can then, you know, she just created the the language. It was pretty genius. Do people still stop you in the street and say it to you? <laughs> they do. <laughs> do they put their hands in the W as well? Sometimes, or sometimes they just, they like secretly are like, will you just do it for me? You know, like they just want to, I mean, it's funny. Uh, There's no way you could have known 22 years ago that American Pie was going to become as huge as it did. But I love that when you first got the script, you threw it in the bin and cancelled your audition. That I did. You know, I just didn't give it a chance. I judged a book by its cover. And the title of the of the script was Teen Sex Comedy That You Can Make For Under $10 Million That Studios Will Hate But Audiences Will Love. It's a catchy title. That. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your first reaction then? You open the script. You see his description of uh, what you're going to have to do. Well, yeah, it was, uh, it was a scene. The original script opened with a scene between my character and uh, so it was Kevin and Vicky and um, Vicky was giving Kevin some specific instructions on how he should maneuver his fingers. And I was like, Oh gosh. Uh, yeah. Uh, no teen sex comedy. more like a porno. Thank No, thank you. So that's, that was, that was my first impression and uh, reaction. So then what convinced you to audition for it? My agent at the time um, said that they they really wanted to see me. I think I've only actually just found this out. Um, so Andrew Keegan, who's also in Adverse. Another 90s yes, teen star. Apparently, uh, Keegan told me that because I had I had found out that he had booked American Pie before me oh. uh, for my role. But he was also doing 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah. And there was apparently one day in question that messed up his schedule. And it was the day they were shooting with uh, the band Save Ferris. And they wouldn't move it. And so that's how the role became available to me. Wow. Um, So, and we would, Keegan and I would go on a lot of similar auditions together. Um, You know, we had a similar look, not just because we went to high school together. And uh, I basically, my agent said, they really want to see you. Can you read this script? And I said, okay, I promise I'll, I'll at least read the script all the way through and give it one, you know, one more chance. I didn't go and pick up the script in time. And I told her I would answer her by like a certain time period. So I said, okay, let's, listen, I, I, I'm going to go on the audition tomorrow. I'll pick up the script tonight, you know, from the Dropbox in front of the office. And I promise I'll be there. She goes, okay. So I drive there late at night, pick it up. I read it. In the morning, like I wake up at like 5 a.m. because my audition's at 10 or 11 and I'm laughing hysterically and it's the best thing I've ever read. I didn't know why I didn't give it a chance before. 
had a fair share of teen heartthrobs on the podcast this season. Both Anthony Costa from Blue and Bross drummer Luke Goss reminisced about their rise to fame and massive achievements along the way. Here's Luke first. So your first tour started out in Sheffield City Hall. Oh, did it? All right. <laughs> and a year later, you became the youngest band to headline Wembley Stadium. So what, what was that like as a 19-year-old playing on that kind of stage? Do you know the funny thing about Wembley Stadium that I remember really clearly, other than the gig, which I'll get to, but it sounds silly, but I hitting that bass drum to it when, the, when it wasn't full and this, when the stadium was empty and going boom, boom, and you're going boom, boom, going around the, the stadium. I say the word stadium now, like what? But um, yeah, it was, it was a very, very, very strange feeling. I, again, I mean, think about it. If you were doing the same thing, I'd imagine your response would be no different to mine. It's that simple. You look at the thing, you think, you know it's the truth. You know you're the reason for it. But anyone who can suddenly say, I am here, you know, <laughs> I, you know, for me, it was like, my goodness, what is, what is going on here? You know, it was an amazing, and, and my mum's in the Royal box looking at her boys. So it, it was, um, you've got to try and fit in the joy in those moments and excitement while you're not addressing the 68, 70,000 people in front of you, making sure you don't mess up. <laughs> I mean, that must be so scary. I would not do that. <laughs> You've got to enjoy it and get on with it at the same time. I get nervous singing karaoke in front of like five people. <laughs> I can sing karaoke in front of two people. I mean, I mean, if I've got a stage that's done right, count me in. But if, if you ever see me in a karaoke bar, just grab my hand. We'll walk out and we'll have a beer outside because I don't want to be in the rhythm. <laughs> really? Would you not? Would you not do karaoke? <laughs> I can't. I, I can't bear it. I have a story. I was doing a movie. I, I flew into China. I won't say who, but because people know who. But I, I, there was a karaoke moment, and in China there was these very exclusive rooms, which for me just made it even more agonising. So now eight people that I don't know, and everyone gets up and and sings, and I'm a professional musician. I'm thinking, I, this is just agonising for me, and I've only ever done it once in my life because it was polite to do so. And now I'd rather be impolite and say, no, I, I just, I do many things, but I don't do karaoke. <laughs> you draw the line. That is it. It's a big fat line in the sand. There, I promise. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you hundred percent. So you played almost 50 dates on the push tour. And I imagine the physical energy it takes to drum for a few hours, almost every night is immense as well as the the pain and blood literally you endured from the blisters from from playing how did you not burn out um it's funny actually i just, i had that to go through recently when we did the o2 i was doing 10 hours a day rehearsing so 10 hours of drumming a day is i was losing 5 pounds 5 pounds of body weight a day wow i get messages all the time you're so lean you're this i'm like look you know <laughs> do what i do comes <laughs> with the territory but uh, I'm thankful for it. But yeah, it's with this, you're looking at seven, eight blisters on each hand. And I've got this this drum head somewhere from the O2 training where I, it's just splats of my blood all over it and it's all dented up. And it's, I don't know, it feels like a gorgeous rite of passage. The thing about being a drummer is that you realize that the pain in your hands reaches its threshold. It's just, it, thre it, it plateaus. And you have to just say that's the norm. And you play through... The blisters are the sort of base, uh, if it would be a base test, if you had a, you know, the test reading that was neutral, that's just becomes the normal pain. You can't think about it. The only thing that did happen to me for the first time in Brixton recently was um, so much sweat from being a smaller venue in a two, two hour and 10 minute show. 
I started cramping in my forearms. So my dear best mate and slash executive ran on with a teaspoon of salt and I put half a teaspoon of salt in my mouth and swigged water and we got through it. But I had to, dra- I had to drum through a good couple of minutes of my hands just not wanting to move an inch. But it was- wow. Drummers are lunatics. That's why I love hanging out with drummers. Man. <laughs> All three of your studio albums went to number one. And you had countless number one singles around the world. But what did you feel like when you got your first number one? And how did you celebrate it? Our first number one was too close. And if I remember rightly, we were coming back from a gig in Hull. We were doing one of them um, party in the park type shows. And I silly organised a number one party at my ass. I don't know why. We weren't even number I didn't even know we were going to be number one. So everyone's mums were there, family. My family were there, all ready to pop the champagne. And literally, as I pulled into the drive, I think it was Dr. Fox. He said, right, the new number one is blue, too close. And we was like jumping up and down in the car. And if you remember Fools and Horses, when the car's doing that, when they become millionaires, <laughs> it was literally like that. So, yeah, and we, we celebrated all night. It was a, it was a good, good time for, for pop music and a good time for us, for sure. Man, what would have happened if you hadn't been number one that day and you got all those people around to your house? Drop embarrassing, isn't it? You'd be embarrassed, man. <laughs> we just we'd have just had a drink anyway because it's the taking part that counts. <laughs> <laughs> I love that your mum and Duncan's mum ran your fan club. I mean, back then, I guess people were still writing letters. <laughs> Obviously, now we got emails. But um, did, did your did your parents just have mountains of post? Yeah, we, I don't know about Matt is a post, but it was, it was crazy because we did it from my old house in Northwest London. So my mum and Dunk's mum decided to do it and they'd be literally sending letters, sending presents, sending teddy bears, toys, et cetera, et cetera. It was just a mad time. Like the postman was like, what is going on here? Like my local postman from like a year before was just getting up one letter a day you know, to, to my mum and dad, like the, the electric bill. And then all of a sudden there's like all these teddies, toys, games, letters of love, uh, letters of marriage. And, and this postman was like, what is going on? He's like, sackful. Um, not all for me, I'm telling you now, listeners, not all for me. There's a great story uh, about you and Donatella Versace and a case of mistaken identity. Yeah, so we got invited to the Versace Awards, uh, Versace Awards London, uh, Milan Fashion Week. And Blue had just come out, so we're going back 2001. And we... She wanted us, got kitted out in Versace in Bond Street or Mayfair, one of them places. Flew us in a private jet over to Italy. We land, we go to the hotel, blah, 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 get changed. Anyway, we go to the Milan Fashion Week. We're sitting there. I'm, I'm so bored because it's not my thing. Everyone's walking up and down models. And they said, um, oh, you know, Donatella wants to meet you. So we said, okay, let's go and meet her. Wicked, it's amazing. So we're standing up in a line, you know, you can imagine it's a bit like, when you're meeting the Queen at the Royal Variety Show. And she looks at us and like, that was a wet let's handshake as well. Let me just get it straight. <laughs> and she sort of looked up and down. And I said to the boys, I said, that's a bit weird. I said, what's all that about? I thought we were supposed to be these like guests of honour. Anyway, cut a long story short, we come home to England and it turns out she invited Blur, but her PR invited Blue. So she, <laughs> she wanted Blur. And not blue. <laughs> How one letter can make so much of a difference. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's true, man. And I've seen that Alex from Blur before. He said, you took our bloody invitation. 
And we started laughing. Well, he's making cheese now, so, you know. <laughs> he's making cheese. He's, 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 he's smashing it, the geezer. He's doing so well. I wonder if he sent any cheese to Donatella Versace. Probably. Blue cheese. He please sent some blue cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go, Don. My guests have been so extraordinarily open and honest while sharing their stories with me. One of those people was Diane Udell, otherwise known as TV Gladiator Jet, and now works as a psychotherapist. And she talked about her experience with an eating disorder and how the TV show helped her learn to love her body. I, I was surprised to learn that you were actually pretty shy. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you've, you've just trying to touch that you, you didn't really, you know, it was never your intention to kind of be at the forefront no. of the stage. And you also had a, an eating disorder for five years up until you were 19. Mm. Um, so to go from obscurity to suddenly being this sex symbol yeah. overnight and watched by 12 million people, mm. you know, how, how did you cope with that? Do you know what? It was a huge, huge plush. I mean, as a psychotherapist, I'm very much of you can't change what's outside of you, but you very much can start to change how you look at the world from inside, you know. Um, and at the time, it, it gave me a chance. I'd been bulimic for four years from 14 to 19 um, when the symptoms had manifest. I'd always had thoughts because I've been a gymnast. I grew very tall, very young. And all my compatriots at the time were tiny junior champion gymnasts, but I'd grown to the height of a senior, five foot six, by the age of 13, which which takes you out of sort of when it does it all it did for me was meant that throwing the 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 higher tariff, more dangerous moves was becoming more difficult because there's more a longer body, longer lever length to throw around. And I started developing as well. And I had a bit of a hang-up of like, I want to remain kind of, you know, boy looking for as long as possible because my career as a gymnast at risk. And I had that real kind of alpha mentality as a young child because I was an elite athlete and that's what happens. But for me at the time, turning into a woman with boobies uh, and bottom um, <laughs> and then somebody behind me on a tumble run one day saying, oh, die, you're getting a beautiful figure. I could have died. I just thought, what? A figure? That's what women have. And, you know, I was, I was really I was really driven, as you can tell, Jen. And um, not at all like most girls go, oh, I want to have my bra. I want to grow up. And I'm like, no, this is the horrible, worst thing that could happen to me. And so that's why. So from 14 to 19, I really wrestled with the whole kind of becoming what visibly, in the end, as Jet, was a very feminized, very glamorous. Now I look back and think, gosh. So actually, Glad's kind of really helped me. The, the external helped me kind of go, well, actually having a bit more booby and body um, um, and it not wobbling around too much and me feeling okay about it. And it's all right to have lumps and bumps in all the wrong and the right places because you've got to remember the early 1990s, we'd come out of the 1980s where heroin chic, like looking like a coat hanger with like a skeletal frame had become very normalized from the world of fashion into mainstream for women to think, oh gosh, you know, you've got to not have a figure to be beautiful. Well, I thought, you know, to hell with it. Here we are, functional athletes with lumps and bumps and all the wrong and right, loads of muscle. I've got fantastic lots of natural muscle, which now in my mid-years is great because metabolically it means I'm, I'm, I'm able to keep the weight off lots of mid, midlife. There's loads of stuff about hormones. So I could go on forever. But anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm really <laughs> fortunate. I was born with a really high propensity to muscle mass. And, um, and that's in my DNA. Not every woman gets that. So I, GLAD's allowed me to kind of go, wait a minute. This, I am, I'm doing Jet. I'm being Jet. I'm part of this amazing show. 
because of who I am, because of how God made me, this is a big plus in my life. So I had the wonderful opportunity to do a massive reframe uh, and pull away from a period of, of definitely a mental health issue with bulimia, um, which pervaded my life for quite a few years. I've not talked about that in ages. And now it feels like really bizarre that I ever was that way. I'm like, wow, I can barely remember it. But I remembered looking in the mirror and really really being very torturous about my own body, body dysmorphia, very about my own body image. Because, of course, when, it, when you train as a dancer, you're staring in the mirror for hours a day, every day. But I love the way the world is now. We're so much more inclusive of all shapes, sizes, colours, ages, and it's great. Uh, but in my day, it was very it was very elitist, and um, I fit the mould. But the mould that I did fit became my, my, my USP and what, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful, really can see it all now and think, wow, I'm so fortunate. And and I mm. love the body I've been given because it works. And I'm very fortunate to maintain that too. <laughs> Does it kind of feel weird that you were like on posters in lots of teenage boys' bedrooms? Uh, I would cringe because obviously coming from a background of really not liking my body, feeling really self-conscious and like everything wasn't right to so suddenly being loved in that way. Yeah, even now I'm a bit like, oh, it's freaky. But, you know, people, people, I know a lot more about how people work. So becoming famous really got me interested in more psychotherapeutics. I've always been interested in the mind as a child. And then couple that with the journey of becoming a famous person and what we do is, is, is how we project. We project it our idea of people onto people immediately uh, so we make up you might see what you see in a thin slice but then you make up the rest until you fully get to know the person and what we make up the projection onto that person is usually quite delicious because you're wanting that person to be all these wonderful things so that's what happened to me during the jet years is that people didn't know me from adam they could get a thin slice of me and then project onto me a whole set of ideas which was so positive and so full of love and, and i'm happy to say i kind of do match a lot of in self-reflection I am a decent <laughs> person and I do generally I'm very grateful I've got a lot of grace in my heart and yeah it was it wasn't too far away from what I know I am so I'm really grateful to this day um with with all of this and even now if I look at pictures I'm going through stuff now as I'm, I'm helping sort through things uh where I'm staying I'm finding box loads of pictures from that era thinking wow 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 and double wow how fortunate was I to be an early 20 something on one of the country's biggest shows and fit and healthy and I'm so grateful so so grateful for all of those opportunities yeah magical Another guest who was amazingly honest was 80s singer Glenn Medeiros, who talked about some of the difficulties he faced in the music industry. So you did a collaboration with Bobby Brown. Yes. She Ain't Worth It, which gave you your first number one in the US. Mm -hmm. But that that was a change from your usual kind of ballady love song type thing. Yes. How did that come about? Well, um, there's a little bit of a story to that, actually, because uh, in 1988 or so, I had signed to MCA Records in the United States, and the president that had signed me had left the company, and, and so I didn't have the support that, that I really wanted. I was looking to do the type of music that I had done in the past, more along the lines of a you know, romantic pop singer, and I pushed for that, but the people at the record label basically had told me, look, Glenn, if you, we do that, you're out of a deal. 
and I had just bought my first home on Kauai, and and I was in a situation where even though nothing's going to change my life, you had done very well. The income from that wasn't really happening because I wasn't selling a lot of albums. I was selling more more singles, and I hadn't really written the songs. So, and I think you'll find with a lot of artists that if they're not writing their songs, the way the music industry is set up that you have to recoup a lot of money back before you can start making money. And in my case, if you're not selling a lot of albums, then uh, you won't recoup that those funds back. So basically, I was in a tough situation financially, and I made the decision to say, hey, uh, what would you like me to do? And and they said, well, you know, hip-hop is really big right now. I want you to do this. Bobby Brown's on the same label as you are. We, we can do something together. We'll support it 100%. And, and I made the decision to move forward, even though I enjoy listening to R&B, it wasn't something that I, you know, was used to singing or doing. So in my opinion, I'll, you know, I take the blame for that to a certain extent because I did something that wasn't uh, authentic for me. But at the same time, it's music I enjoyed and I looked forward to working with Bobby. And yes, we did end up getting a number one song. So when I look back at it, uh, there's some regret, but at the same time, I also look back at it with some positivity, too. So we did end up releasing the song, went to number one in the United States. Although the United States didn't really, wasn't really a major market for me personally. Nothing's going to change my life. You had top at about, um, I think, 11 or 12 in the nation. And because it was released on one side of the country first and then the other, first on a small record label and then a major. Uh, in other countries in Europe, it had mostly reached number one in most of the countries. So... It was good for me in some ways in the United States because they they don't they know this they knew the song but they didn't know who sang it, whereas in Europe, everybody was like, um, oh, what is he doing now? Is he selling out? Is he is he you know does he does he just care about record sales? Or, and it didn't really do all that well um, in Europe as compared to the United States. So so you know you live and learn. And uh, I, when I look back again, I think I, I wish I would have kind of held my ground. But at the same time, who knows? I never. I might never had a chance to record again. So, do you feel like if you'd been older than you were at the time, you would have felt more confident to stand your ground and say, "No, this is what I want to do." I don't know, to be honest. I mean, that's a great question. I I think when it comes to survival, our survival instinct starts to kick in, no matter what our age is. And for me, I I needed, I really wanted to continue to to have a home that I just purchased and and to keep it going and. And when a major recording label says, we're going to back you 100% if you do this, it's a very, very tough thing to say no to because there's so many artists that want that. I remember an artist, a repertoire person at MCA Records once told me, he said, you know, we could make a fart a hit if we wanted to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it's true. It's true. Like He said, we'll play it enough times, get enough rotation, and it'll be a hit, you know. Uh, just put a little beat to it. <laughs> so, so. You know, uh, but no, I, I think in retrospect, if I could do it again, I would say this. And I say this to my daughter and my son. My, my son's t- almost 21 and my daughter's 20. And, and I tell them, I said, get your education first. Get your education not only so that you're secure in yourself and you have something to fall back on, but it also helps you to be able to take your talents at a young age and find your own sound, find your own uh, style because when you're young you're basically imitating and even though my voice started mature as you mentioned I was still kind of in that imitation mode yet at the time and hadn't really found my voice 
until I was about 24 or so, 23, 24, where it, I felt, okay, this is, this is the voice I'm looking for, and, um, and this is the sound I'm looking for. I've had some brilliant laughs with my guests, and I hope you've laughed along with us. Here's Nick Frost talking about learning to dance and his unusual pastime that involves cake. What was easier, learning the martial arts stuff into the Badlands or the salsa for keeping fury? Oh my God, I would, fuck, learning martial, I love doing the fighting in the martial arts, you know, I'm a fan of martial arts, so I love doing that. Dancing was awful, Cuban fury was awful. Uh, how, I mean, I'm not being flippant about suicide, but how I didn't kill myself after the first two weeks of training is, is, a, is <laughs> I just, you know, being a big man who's never danced salsa before, having to stand in a room which is made up of mirrors trying to do a basic salsa step, you know, was so fucking awful. And then, like, in my mind, I could just... I was replaying what I was set, what, what, what I was saying at the meetings to get the film green lit in terms of, I want to do all my own dancing, dancing, dancing. I can do it. I can dance salsa, salsa, salsa. And then me just looking at myself in the mirror, just thinking, why did you say those things, you idiot? <laughs> Final question. Are you still flushing cakes down the toilet? I haven't flushed a cake for, for a long time. I mean, I think about it a lot because I, whenever I flush a toilet, I think, could that flush a cake? You know, <laughs> and I, I think I've only ever seen American toilets at their most powerful best, like in hotels and stuff. But this house I'm in, even though it's really nice, it's the toilets block quite easily. So it's like, I don't think I could even flush a fucking muffin down these toilets. <laughs> I'd have an issue flushing a muffin down his toilet. <laughs> For anyone who hasn't seen, Nick used to flush cakes down the toilet on a, a press tour a few, quite a few years ago. But all the videos are on YouTube if you wish to yeah. watch them. <laughs> uh, yeah, just stuff that guys do when they're alone. And uh, I think there's one too where someone gave us loads of um, like hash cakes at one screening, which we took and then decided to flush a cake, and we're all just dangerously stoned. <laughs> Bear that in mind when you watch those. It was a long time ago. I'll end with my favourite moment of the series, which was with Parminda Nagra. I've honestly not laughed so much in an interview. It was so fun. And after reminiscing about Bendelai Beckham, we talked about some of Parminda's other life achievements where this gem emerged. But before that, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in this season. As I always say, I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, so thank you for choosing this one. And huge thanks especially to everyone that supported and donated to the podcast to help keep it going. If you'd like to help too, just go to celebritycatchup.com support. I'll be back later this summer with more celebrities talking about their life after that thing they did and giving you your fortnightly dose of 80s, 90s and noughties nostalgia. In the meantime, why not go back and listen to some of the episodes you may have missed this season? And until next time, thanks for listening. A few quick fire questions for you before we end. Mm -hmm. um, there's a portrait of you in the National Portrait Gallery in London. Oh, there's another one I forgot about, yeah. <laughs> When was the last time you visited it? I don't think I've ever visited it. I remember sitting for that and the poor man, I fell asleep during, because it was like, took hours, right? Because it's self-portrait. 
Uh, not self-portrait, sorry. He was doing the portrait. I wasn't doing it. <laughs> It'd be terrible if I did it. Um, <laughs> um, okay, you fell asleep while posing for your own portrait. And then I woke up and I went, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And he said, he said, oh no, when it got really bad, which is basically my mouth was hanging open. He goes, I started colouring in your hair, which obviously <laughs> no one else can see, but as you can see, I've got a lot of hair. Uh, he started colouring my hair. <laughs> And I look really grumpy in that picture, by the way. But, I mean, how else are you supposed to look when you're staring out of a window for like eight hours? <laughs> That's why these portraits never look, they're never smiling. You can't hold it for that long. It's ridiculous. Um, but but I'm very proud of it. <laughs> you also won. Olympic torchbearers when it passed through London on its way to Athens. Yeah, man, you're really good for my ego today. <laughs> Did you get to keep it? And if so, where is it now? No, I bloody didn't get to keep it. Oh, along with the FIFA award. Yeah, that's another thing I didn't get to keep. <laughs> Listen, Genevieve, sort this out for me. <laughs> but I would like the Olympic torch. That was amazing, running across Millennium Bridge towards that crowd. And the runners who, the poor guys had been running probably God knows how long. And I got so happy. I was like speeding off ahead and they were like, and I could get, guy was like, slow down, slow down. Like I was like, all right. It's just got, just like really happy. I had the torch and this is so cool. <laughs> um, it wasn't like one of those things where you start running really fast. And you're like, yeah, I can do this. And then you start realizing, actually, I can't do this anymore. And you start slowing down to a trot. No, it was the adrenaline, honestly, uh, that adrenaline, and it wasn't even for very long because by the time you got to the bottom of the street, they were like, all right, can you give it back? And I was like, can I just run a little bit more with it? <laughs> and then you're on a bus and they took you somewhere else. But um, that, yeah, that was a really amazing moment in time. It's good memories. Good memories. 